0: You're listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Eaton, sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply.
1: Hey, folks, thanks for joining me for episode 18 of Standing Before the Mass podcast. My guest for this episode is former New York Times columnist Barbara Lloyd. Barbara covered sailing and skiing sports for the New York Times, as well as penned a gear column for the Times. But Barbara has humble roots here at home with the Newport Daily News. It was at the Newport Daily News where she began as a cub reporter. Barbara honed her skills covering the America's Cup races and interviewing sailors including Ted Turner and Dennis Conner. Her nomadic lifestyle, free-spirited nature, and hard work allowed her to live and travel to spectacular places around the world. At a time when men dominated journalism, Barbara leaned in to a man's world and faced few obstacles to her success. Her journalistic integrity and determination earned her the respect of her editors and peers alike. We had a great chat where she recalled some of the more memorable and poignant times in her life, as well as some humorous tales including being pranked by Sir Richard Branson, the value of a quality piece of hand fruit while in rough conditions offshore, a funny story about an airborne skateboard in an apartment, and a somewhat domesticated bobcat named Toma. Barbara recently published a book, which I recommend to anyone who follows sailing, skiing, journalism, and adventure. That book is called Heart of the Story, Notes from a Reporter's Free-Spirited Life, a memoir by Barbara Lloyd. And you can find it on Amazon.com. I hope you enjoy. Was, was journalism your chosen field, or did you fall into it?
2: Uh, no, teaching was my chosen field. And of all the things, it was mainly retarded children. And I got a master's degree in uh, special education mm-hmm. back in the day. And uh, I, I don't know how I came upon that. I, I actually, as I think about it, I do know. Uh, for my student teaching... Uh, I, at the university, one of the New York universities, I had, I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. So I went into special ed for almost no reason except that I got a, I got a, a grant to get a master's degree in special education. Mm. So as long as I was given this money um, to go into special education, I thought, well, why not take it to get a master's degree, which is what I did. And I did student teaching in that, and it was it was okay. I I student I did some student teaching in a city school in Rochester, New York, and that was hard because mm-hmm. the kids were really troublesome. But they were they were they were good kids, but they were, you know, they'd had a, a tough time, so it was hard teaching them. And so anyway, I just decided at that time that it, it was going to be. I did some student teaching other than that as well, and I finally decided I didn't want to. Want to do it, even mm. though I got a master's degree in special ed, which is too bad because right.
1: it was just too much.
2: <sighs> yeah, it wasn't. It, it was it was too much. It mm. just wasn't something I decided I wanted to do for the rest of my life.
1: And how did what brought you to Newport or the Newport Daily News? Um, or was there were there other steps to get there?
2: There were other steps. Mm. Uh, I I was married uh, to a guy who became a professor at the Naval War College. Ah. and we were living in Washington D.C. And uh, when we were first married. And so he received a professorship at here in, in Newport at mm-hmm. the Naval War College. So that's why I came here. So that's how I ended up.
1: That's, but that's a, another avenue that a lot of people take to wind up in Newport is that there are a lot of retired Navy officers here. Oh, yeah, yeah I know. That settle in Newport. Well,
2: I knew more of them and when we were involved, when I was still married. I'm not married to him anymore, but mm. – um, when we were involved uh, with the Naval War College, he still teaches there, or did I think he's, he is retired now? Mm. Um, then that that is true. There, was, I really felt the naval presence mm. of Newport.
1: And what brought you to the Newport Daily News?
2: I decided that I wanted to. Um, I don't know. I oh. just decided I wanted to go into the news business. I would drive by there all the time. That that office on the hill. Mm. And I decided that that might be an interesting job rather than teaching.
1: I read, I don't know if you saw it, but a few weeks ago, Jim Gillis in his column gave a nice shout out about your book.
2: He did, that's right.
1: Yeah, and I guess the as I read your book, I, I, wondered, I said, oh, I wonder if you two ever overlapped. And he acknowledged in his column that it was your departure that allowed him to get a job.
2: That's right. I didn't actually remember that, but...
1: You know, he, yeah he, I he didn't did.
2: realize that he stepped into my job or at
1: least a position opened yeah up. yeah yeah
2: yeah because yeah. no he didn't cover boating the way I did or
1: early on when you started the Newport Daily News you're you're covering sailing and sports or did you start doing other things
2: yeah I was I was covering uh, I was their sailing writer and yes I but that was the only sport actually that I did and I did hard news as well I chased fire engines all oh, right for a while. Yeah, And it was interesting, and I I liked it. I mean, there were a few criminals that I watched get arrested. And, you know, so I I did have a police beat for a while. Mm. I was a real reporter as opposed to a a boating reporter. I mean, boating is a real reporter, but it was less uh, troublesome.
1: Right. One thing that stood out as I read the book, and it was a theme that seemed to keep popping up, I don't know if it was a tribute to your ability to convince editors to let you go on travels, chase these stories, uh, take leaves of absences. But that's just a concept that I can't get my head around in this day where people are being let go uh, and, and that staffs are being reduced in newspapers. I recently read a statistic that some 1,800 newspapers have gone under since 2004.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, but you you convinced your editors numerous times to let you go chase a story um or take a leave of absence and get get paid but you would cover certain expenses
2: that's right that's right well it was a it was a matter of circumstances um i was living with a guy from denmark right for quite a while for six or seven years and he he um he was the captain of a ship Mm -hmm. and in europe and I, and when I, I would take leaves of absence from the Newport Daily News, they were very generous about that because I'd worked so much overtime ah. that I could get away when I wanted to. So I had weeks of, of overtime
1: because
2: mm-hmm. I did a lot for them in terms of the scope of my writing. So um, I, would, I would go off uh, with this friend who was from Denmark who owned a small ship that plied the waters of northern Europe. With everything from China clay to taking it from uh, China clay to take it over to the uh, the Mediterranean where they were making various mm-hmm. porcelain, this and that, uh, to um, carrying uh, grain to ports along the Mediterranean. So I, I was away a lot doing that, and then I would come back. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a great job because they were very – I worked so much overtime when I was at the Newport Daily News that I accrued it really fast. And so rather than take it in money, I would take it in time. Ah. So I had, it was a really a good situation for me.
1: Yeah. And was that in your chasing fire trucks days, or was that when you were also covering America's Cup, or was it all intermingled? Well, it was both. It, it was, was all both.
2: intermingled. Um, I became their boating rider. I can't really remember why they made me their boating rider. Except they knew I grew up on Lake Ontario along Lake Ontario, and mm. I had small boats, um, and so they made me their boating writer, which was just a great job. Mm. And um, I made it into more than it started out to be, because of all the things that were happening in Newport. I, I always wrote about the America's Cup races, and they would, they generously uh, would let me free for the summer to to write about America's Cup, and so I became. Really good at that because I knew so much about it because mm. I was doing it for the Newport Daily News, and then later I did it for the Providence Journal. I think for one summer or two summers, and uh, but and then I went on and and became a freelance writer and wrote a newsletter about it, and then eventually became the yachting writer for the New York Times. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm making it all, I'm running it all together in one right. sentence, but it was years. Yeah, yeah, I noticed.
1: When you covered the America's Cup, you the, was the first, the first cup you covered, was that with Ted Turner? Was he defending yes. it? Yes, yes, was. He was defending it then, yeah. 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 And uh, he's quite a character.
2: He is a character. Yeah. He is a character. He was hard to interview because he was always flitting around and, and it was hard to line up interviews with him as a cub reporter which is what I was in the early days right so um but but I always managed to you know catch him on the dock or whatever mm. so and and th- that's what he did of course he's infamous for a c- couple of his drunken uh, um press conferences here in Newport mm. but uh i you know you, you back in those days they didn't have have press conferences after people got in from the boats right. after there was there was racing mostly they didn't during the season and the season lasted for 4 months in a series of trial races to find out who finally would race the american boat against a foreign competitor mm-hmm. and that's what the americas cup was all about right and turner was a really good sailor and uh he was pretty outlandish you know he was a a character mm. uh, but and then you know but there were other people that came to town to do the same thing dennis connor who was well known and mm. And others, and and so that was my job to get interviews with those people to uh, be out in the race course off in Newport for you know four or five hours at a time, which sounds like it would be fun in, instead of being in an office, but it could be really boring. Or right. It, if it was really rough out there, you're just being bounced around like crazy. Or if it's raining or foggy, you're waiting, waiting, and then they cancel races. And it was I'm not complaining. It was a great job, but I'm just saying that it was not as illustrious as it might sound.
1: Is that what led you, uh, those often boring conditions, to don the Lady Liberty outfit?
2: Oh, <laughs> I saw the picture in the
1: book. Yeah. It said for a moment of levity.
2: Right. That was covering a race off of New York City because I was writing oh, was it. it? Oh, okay. At that time, I had moved up from the Newport Daily News to the New York Times. Oh, right. I had gone from the Newport Daily News to, a, I think, one summer with the Providence Journal. and From the Providence Journal, I got a job being the boating and ski rider for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And I think that that photograph that you're talking about, I probably was doing it for the Providence Journal. I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah, there were some great days out in those press boats. Mm -hmm. The sun was shining, and, you know, I wasn't sitting in an office. I was out on a boat off of Newport, and if we had to wait for a while for the races to start, so be it. And then there were those days where there was heavy fog, And it was boring, and you didn't know if the race was going to start. And you're out there sloshing around, and the boat is going from side to side. And, you know, you know that you're so far out because they always started the races Mm -hmm. several miles offshore that, you know, if they didn't get the race off, you'd have to come in, and you'd still have to write something. Right. Even though there was no race. So it, it was yin and yang. It was great. It was a great job, and it was a really boring job or a a trying job.
1: Hmm. Well, reading your book, it it seemed like it was a lot more exciting, not just the the part where you were a reporter Mm -hmm. with whatever organization, but Mm -hmm. your whole life. I mean, you water skiing in a river in Mexico. I I mean, you packed a lot into it. Uh, And I I was just impressed. This is not so much a book to me about your reporting. It's a tale of adventures.
2: It is a tale of adventures.
1: It's a significant book. Full disclosure: I was your tenant at one point. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, with with two other in people. The house that
2: I owned in Newport.
1: That's right, on on Sherman Street, right. and. I remember you had written to me. You were in Montana, mm-hmm. and you were describing this, the view or the scene out your window, and it was so picturesque, and I was in dreary Newport in January. Oh, right. And I thought, wow, right. this, this woman is really living the life here.
2: <laughs> so I did move out to Montana for several winters. It was actually more than several. I think I went out there for five or six winters. Mm. Uh, and um, I went out there because some friends uh, – had gone out there the year before, and they told me about it, and they told me about a house that where I could rent an apartment, and I thought, well, that sounds like fun because I had nothing going on in the winter, and I thought um, I was a ski writer at the times at, at that time for the New York Times, so I went into New York and I I told them that I had a chance to go out to Montana for the winter, and did they have any problem with my going out there? And they said, no, no, that was fine, and in in the long run, I think it really worked out for them. Because once I was in Montana, they could send me to a lot of ski areas in the West, which they never were able to do before for financial reasons. Mm. And so they had a reporter out where a lot of the big uh, World Cup races were being held. Right. So that worked out for me, and it worked out for them. And I, um, through my connections of friends of friends, I found out that I could rent a first floor of a big log house that overlooked the whole valley. Avoid Fish Montana, mm. for very little money. And it was just an amazing place. In the place. winter? In the winter.
1: I don't think you could do that today.
2: No. <laughs> no. And I went out there. I remember driving out with a friend and just having a few little photos but not really knowing what I was getting into but that I had rented this place for the winter. Mm. And I wasn't with any particular person at the time. Um, so... I decided to drive out, and I got a friend to drive out with me. It was a five-day trip. I had a red Audi at the time that wow. I bought with some money that I'd gotten from several big magazine articles. Mm. And I always remember the day I drove that car home, and my son went crazy. Mom, I can't believe you bought this red Audi. Cool. Great. All right. <laughs> anyway, so it was a great car to drive out west because it was all-wheel drive. Right. Right. And, I, and it took me five days to get out there. And, again, I was so fortunate. I lined up an apartment that I had not seen in a big log house that I just mentioned previously mm. that overlooked the valley for a very reasonable price. And I stayed the whole winter in wow. that house for the first floor. I had deer come up to the window and look in the window. Wow. And I overlooked the whole Whitefish Valley and white the town of Whitefish because I was up in the mountaintop, hmm. and I was only uh, I was only a thousand yards from the ski area up there. Wow! So I went skiing all the time. I, I just went from one great
1: <laughs> that's brilliant
2: from from one great job to the other.
1: Another theme I picked up on: you also wound up in dangerous situations quite frequently, or frequently enough. I did. Bears, boats, avalanches. <laughs> Yeah, the the bears must have been in Montana. The or? bears
2: were in Montana, although uh, I went into Glacier National Park many times with friends, and we would go cross-country skiing there in the winter time. And, yeah, bears – but I was never chased by a bear. Right. I was just always aware of the presence. Yeah. Because to be in Glacier Park in the wintertime, you know there are, the bears hibernate, yes, but they also come out for food. And I can remember cross-country skiing in Glacier being with a friend um, – And having a ranger stop us and say, look, we've got big bear tracks here. You ought to really be careful because they're they're grizzly tracks. Mm. And so we talked about it. We went on a little bit, but then it made us nervous because at that time of year, there's really no one else in the park. Right. I mean, it didn't seem so. So we turned around. But, you know, they were great adventures, especially uh, in Montana where it was so beautiful and and uh, uh, having that wonderful house that I have, a big log house, mm. the owners lived on the second and third floors, and I had the whole first floor.
1: Now, it, is, is this about the time when you also, I don't know if it was the New York Times, you had a gear column?
2: I did. I had a gear column. Mm. So I did a boating column in the summer for them and a ski column in the winter, and then I had a gear column year-round. Mm-hmm. So that meant every Thursday, for every Thursday, there was an article in the paper in the sports section of the Times, about some new gear in any sport at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, so that was a great job, except that sometimes it got really annoying. Uh, I think I put this in the book, but there was one time when I came home. I think I'd been skiing Mm -hmm. because I had a house right near the mountain. And I came home, and there was a huge box at my back door. And I thought, oh, my God, what's that? So I ripped open the box and it was a treadmill oh and some company had sent me the treadmill to try it out for my gear column Mm. but you know that was ludicrous because I I always after that I always made sure that uh, to tell people if it wasn't something small that I could easily send back right I didn't want it
1: so your journalistic integrity is fully intact totally yeah
2: and I think that's why I had the job I did because they trusted me you know But I remember that my son came out about two days later, and he saw the treadmill, and he went, Mom, you're not going to send that back, are you? No one's going to know. They don't care. Right. Chris, I have to send it back. But I could use that treadmill, he said. And I said, no, we're sending it back. But you could send it to me. No.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Now, wasn't there perhaps a more heated struggle over the snowboard? (laughs) There oh, there was, yes, yeah.
2: yes. Oh, yes, that was really – that was a tough one. That, that would when be he tough. When he was visiting me, someone sent me a snowboard mm. that I was, they wanted me to review. And it was at, at the time when snowboards are really becoming popular, and it was a beautiful board. Mm. I, I don't remember the brand, but I'm not going to mention it anyway. And uh, my son was out visiting me at the time from Newport, Rhode Island, and he was a big snowboarder, mm. and he was practically beside himself. That I was going to send that board back because it was the newest high tech. Right. And I just had to tell him, you know, I can't, I can't, I have to send it back because my job is at stake. I can't start keeping this stuff.
1: Boy, the snowboard, snowboarder, I'd be drooling. (laughs) Yeah, I know.
2: And he said, well, I'll pay you half and you could pay the other half. And I go, Mm. no, Chris, because it's not obvious that we paid for it. So I can't start doing that. Right. And, of course, the office would probably never find out because it was New York City. Right. But yeah, I just felt I, I had too much at stake. I had a great job mm. writing about skiing and writing about boating and writing about gear. I mean, who wouldn't love a job like that, writing for the New York Times? And I could live wherever I wanted.
1: Was your gear column more sporting equipment or did it cover some sailing equipment? Uh-huh. It,
2: could it could be anything. Yeah, it depended on the season. But it was sporting. I mean, sailing is mm. sporting. So it was a gear column in the sports section of the time. So right. it was in every Thursday.
1: And that was one of the first columns to get cut. Correct? Or is that one of the. Yeah,
2: I think it was. That was I one of the first things they
1: pulled, yeah. which I think is ironic now because I follow a lot of snowboarding, sailing, uh-huh. and Outside Magazine in particular, at least on their web presence, really is leaning into the gear column and gear review almost to the point where people are actively calling them out online saying, you know, is this a, a veiled advertisement? Basically, oh, right, it's, right, it's it's right. A not so thinly veiled advertisement. Yeah. Um, but
2: you can see where they're going with that. Because mm-hmm. if I started, uh, ex- if if the word got out that the New York Times writer was accepting gear that they could personally use, right, then the the gig is o- over. That's because right. Because I would only be taking things that I wanted, and it would be obvious. And it would be I, I never did that because it was uh, it was it was not. Uh, It was not allowed, and I I never questioned that. Right. I mean, no one at the time said to me, you can't keep it, but that was intrinsic to the job.
1: Just to go back to the America's Cup, back in Newport now, Mm -hmm. um, you're covering various races. We talked about Ted Turner. Um, You have a funny picture in your book where you photobomb Dennis Connor. (laughs) How did you wind up in that situation? He's chugging on a bottle of uh, bubbly there.
2: Right. He's drinking a bottle of champagne and I'm on deadline on a story. Well, let's see. I had for the Newport Daily, I was writing for the Newport Daily News then, which was a small newspaper. And I, um, but I always went into the office after the boat race of the day and mm. wrote my story. I, but, but I was always right there in the action. Right, yeah. <laughs> Even though I it started out at the Newport Daily News, I made sure it didn't matter if I was writing for the New York, New York Times, the Providence Journal, or the well, it didn't matter what newspaper I was writing for. I always made sure I was in the right spot at the right time.
1: You were in the right spot at the right time at the uh, – well, not the conclusion. The unfortunate early ending of the Fastnet in 1979, um, you were there to catch Ted Turner stepping off a boat. Yes,
2: yeah, when all those boats uh, – when they had a storm and all, so many boats capsized. Yeah. I was there because I was living with my Danish friend, who I lived with for six years, and he had a freighter, and he was the freighter was working in Europe. And I was a cook on the freighter. And we were in uh, Plymouth, England at the time of the Fastnet race. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were loading the ship with China clay to take it to Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fastnet race broke out where there were so many boats that capsized. I don't remember the number now, but it was a lot. Mm-hmm. People died. And I'd taken a leave of absence from the Newport Daily News to be on the freighter with my Danish friend. And I remember saying to Jen, who my friend and who was the owner of the ship, I've got to leave. I have to leave because this is too big of a story. I can't, mm. I can't ignore this. I, d- I leave meaning I had to go off that day and, right. and interview people because so many people had been lost at sea. And that's when I ran into Ted Turner.
1: Was he more forthcoming this time?
2: Yeah, he was, mm. but he was all. It, it amazed me because everyone else around the docks was just a mess. I mean, mm. been bad weather, and he was, you know, just all. It looked like he he'd been sitting sitting by a pool all day. He was just all. He was in a white sweater and white pants, and he was, you know, well, but but he handled he had, it well. He handled it well. Yeah. yeah, but he had a big boat. He had Tenacious, which was sixty-seven mm. feet. Mm-hmm. And he, they were inshore before the storm. They were in part of the storm, but so they didn't it, yeah. get the real worst part of the storm. Right. And they were already in at the dock. I'm pretty sure that's how it turned out. I can't say mm-hmm. that unequivocally.
1: And just because we're talking about Ted Turner, you've had three interactions with three different billionaires, and each really represented the character. We've already talked about Ted, but of the individual. The next one, Sir Richard Branson.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, you had the opportunity to ride with him on the Virgin Atlantic Challenger, in keeping with Sir Richard Branson's nature that I've come to understand, he, he did a bit of a prank on you.
2: Yeah, he did. He, we, I was sitting up in the wheelhouse of, of the Virgin Atlantic Challenger with him, and we were going down the East Coast from uh, Boston to New York. Mm-hmm. That was when I was supposed to be interviewing him. I was steering, and he was sitting next to me. And we were talking, and I was interviewing him, but I was also steering. But I had a tape recorder going. All of a sudden, the steering was not working. He was sitting up at the helm as well, but he was off to my right. And I, was, I had control of the boat, the throttles and the steering. There was um, an ocean liner c- coming in the opposite direction. Up and I w- it really worried me because I was on a trajectory to hit that boat. Mm. I just it, it was a panic moment. Obviously, if well, all I had to do was just pull back on the throttle. Right. But I, I was going pretty fast, and all I could think about was that I'm going to crash into that boat. And Richard Branson just thought it was the funniest thing he ever saw. So he's going, he's yelling at me, do something, do something. That, that That's a British boat. We can hit that boat. Do something. And I said, but, uh, yeah, okay. And then suddenly I realized all I had to do was pull back on the throttle. But. You know, we were we were on our way to having a huge collision. He thought it was
1: very funny, and that he created this situation.
2: Yeah, he created it because he had, he had control of the oh. steering wheel. It was a dual steering system. Oh, okay. And coming back. Yeah, yeah. He had a dual steering system, and he took the steering off of mine without telling you, without telling me. Gotcha. And and so I had no steerage, Ugh. and I was going really fast, and I had a panic moment. I mean. Mm. Yes, yeah. eventually I mean within a minute I realized I had to just pull back on the throttle. Yeah. But initially it was like I'm heading toward that boat and I'm almost there and I'm going to T-bone them.
1: Yeah, he likes he likes and to And he do
2: was that. laughing his head off. He 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 at first he faked being terrified that his boat would be <laughs> crashing. You know, we'll do something. Help, right. do something. And of course then when my senses started working um I, I pulled back the throttle, duh, right, <laughs> and uh, avoided a collision.
1: So it was a fun trip.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was a fun trip on
1: somebody else's boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah those yeah. are the best kinds sometimes. And it
2: was it was fun because I I got an article for the New York Times out of it.
1: And it, oh, that that made the Times. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that trip from Boston to New York was sort of a press junket for him. Then it was to yeah, get yeah, publicity. Yeah, do you
2: want to go on this boat that's going to try to break the transatlantic a uh, record? So we Which were, they did, didn't yeah, they? Which they did, and we yeah. were on our way to New York City. Um, they didn't do it that time because something happened. I think near Eng- the English coast, the boat broke down t- right. just before they were going to get there. So they did not break the record, but they tried it another time. Uh, and they did. And they did. Yeah,
1: and yeah. that it, I think it's been broken a couple of times since.
2: But nobody seems to be doing that anymore, you yeah. know, these records, because it, it's the biggest, fastest boat, and it's— for a while there, was, you know, uh, exposing the new technology and boating. Mm-hmm. But now people are capable of doing almost anything in terms of the latest and best. Mm. So th- those records, no one's trying for those records anymore.
1: Nowadays, well, at least with the Volvo Ocean Race, they have somebody who's a sailor mm-hmm. with journalistic talent that travels, and they're, they're the ones filing a story from each boat, or that had been the case in the last couple of Volvos that I followed would you think you would f- sign on for that kind of adventure?
2: Oh, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Cuz I've been on a lot of boats and I don't really get seasick, so I surely would have been on one of those boats. I never thought about it at the time of being on a boat except at the time there were not so many crude races. Um there was a whitbread race which was over in England, but we mm-hmm. didn't have any going from uh from the US. It started out being single-handed racing. Mm. So there were the transatlantic, the uh, several transatlantic races, either with, yeah, one single-handed transatlantic O-Star, transi- O-star yeah. observer, single-handed transatlantic race, and then there were other transatlantic, single-handed, meaning one person to one boat, mm. and then there were two people to a boat, and then there were crewed races. Uh, but that was all just beginning to mushroom mm. at the time. So, I I did not have the opportunity to do that. But had I had the opportunity, I'm sure I would your have Your sense
1: it. of adventure would have yeah, pulled you in. Yeah. You talk about not getting seasick. There was a great story in your book when you were going out to greet, is it Tanya? Is it Abby, know, Abby, a- Tanya
2: Abby, Tanya Abby. Tanya Abby. Yeah.
1: There was a press boat out in New York, and at, at one point you were so not seasick that y- it was rough weather, you pulled out your, you called it a portable computer, and started Composing your story I did.
2: yeah, I that was an epic day. The weather was horrible, and we were out there waiting for tanya Abbey who was a who was due in uh to New York harbor, and her father was on the boat with us on the press boat mm-hmm. and we were all waiting for her and and she was like fifty miles offshore and then you didn't have the technology that we have today where we could have talked to her. The whole time, when she was often she was coming into New York City to New York mm-hmm. Harbor, and we were fifty miles offshore by the time we finally cut the engines to wait for her. Wow! And you could just see the World Trade Towers, which were still standing then. Mm-hmm. You could; they were like specks in the distance. And we kept going farther and farther out to to meet this young girl who was at the time like nineteen or twenty mm-hmm. years old. This is the late eighties.
1: That yeah, I yeah. think it was the late eighties. Late
2: 87, maybe, mm-hmm. 88. And uh, so we were out there all day waiting for her. And of course, again, the technology wasn't there. So she was had a single sideband radio, which didn't have much battery power left in it and so on. So we couldn't talk to her all the time. Her father was on the boat and he was just crazy, uh, trying to, with worry and
0: mm.
2: trying to uh, go and see her just keep going. He wanted us to continue on rather than to wait around new york harbor so by his pestering we did go out of the harbor and, and then the wind kicked up mm-hmm. and we started out in like 15 knots of wind and it ended up being uh much higher it wasn't even a very seaworthy boat and mm-hmm. i was very nervous about it because i knew that and though it was getting so rough out there by the time we came in The wind was blowing at 35 knots, which is considerable, Mm. and the seas were very rough. The skies were clear. That was good, but it was very cold. None of us had enough offshore clothing, and the waves breaking over the boat were horrendous, so we were getting wet, (laughs) even though it was a sunny day. It was one of those brisk—it felt like a fall day, Mm. and I can remember being out there and and being very um, unsettled because Mm. I knew that we were in— I looked around and there were no life jackets. There were only life cushions and there weren't enough for all of us. And I joked, I think, in an article I wrote, I said I put my name mentally on one of the life uh, cushions because, you know, if we went, I thought we were going to go over. Oh, you're I thought, thinking
1: this goes down, I'm grabbing that cushion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: I had my eye on it. <laughs> I stayed near it. And I do remember, I do remember just being out there and thinking, I can't, I have to focus on something else. I can't worry about this. It is what it is. The water was coming over the sides of the gunnels of that boat, just in big waves. And I was amazed that we were not sinking, but I expected we might might capsize. And I remember I was starving because I brought no lunch. No one brought any food because um, we expected to be out in the harbor for, like, maybe an hour at the most we were were gone for like four or five hours with again with the world trade center so far in the distance you could barely see them Mm. and i remember sitting in that chair and water sloshing all over the deck and i was starving and i watched a peach roll by (laughs) and i looked at it and there was vomit all over the deck all over the Mm. boat and then it rolled by me again then it rolled back by me and i grabbed it and i took it and i put it in the ocean water yeah. and i ate it <laughs> yeah.
1: that peach had your name on it it did it yeah.
2: had my name on it i was starving
1: yeah it's it's nice when hand fruit rolls by <laughs> right. at a convenient <laughs> moment
2: and then and then i the times i was writing for the new york times and they sent a photographer with me and he had never been on a boat before he was a real city guy uh. and he was having a fit he and he went down below because he thought it would be safer down there. And I kept going and telling him, you've got to get up here. You've got to get on the deck. You don't want to be right. down there. And he was just getting sick down there. He was a mess. And uh, so he we we all survived. But he wrote me a note, um, at the, it sent it through the New York Times mail service, sometime after that, maybe two, two weeks. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't ever, ever want to be on a boat with you again. <laughs> ever again. <laughs> I don't even want to be on a boat again.
1: Oh, geez. I mean, for
2: him, it was just a horrendous time. It was
1: the worst time of his life. Yeah, because yeah. he was
2: a city city photographer. It was another epic day on the reporting scene. <laughs> you
1: used the term, you leaned into a man's world when describing getting into reporting. But my impression from the very beginning, whether it be the Newport Daily News and then all the other roles you had, unless I'm, you left it out, you didn't face many obstacles. In fact, you were given opportunities that um, are unheard of in the news industry today. Right. You didn't have many obstacles. You just you leaned in and you were accepted.
2: I was. I, I never felt – it's ridiculous to say that because it couldn't have been true. Mm. But let's say I never felt that I was being discriminated against because I was a woman in the news business. Mm. And in fact, I was given incredible opportunities – because I ended up starting out as a cub reporter for the Newport Daily News Mm -hmm. and and being a general assignment reporter and then taking on boating for them. So then I got some boating expertise. And then moving on to the Providence Journal, Mm. where where I wasn't there very long. I was only there for less than a year, um, because then I realized there was an opening at the New York Times. Mm. So I went from the Providence Journal to the New York Times. And... uh, but again, I was made the boating writer, and the, my um, my main editor, who was the main sports editor, his name was Joe Vecchione,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, he gave me whatever opportunity I would accept. In uh. other words, if I had said I wanted to go cover a Yankees game, he would have let me do it, mm. because I think he just, I was lucky, he just had a lot of confidence in me. And of course, I never did that, because I, I couldn't have done justice to that, yeah. but I did I did go out of go beyond my element for many times. He would he would send me to do things that I felt I didn't have the expertise for but I just did it.
1: There was a it was something you were in Montana and you told him you needed to go cover. I was trying to remember. Oh, that, what that was, was a
2: I got a call from the office in New York and um I was painting a room in my house and they said Barbara you have to get out to this certain town in Montana, because they've caught the Unabomber, mm-hmm. and this is the main sport. Not it's not the sports office; it's the main desk of the New York Times is calling me, because someone told them that they had a, the Times had a reporter living near there. Mm-hmm. So I very <laughs> foolishly said I was in the middle of redoing, having painters all over my house. I said I can't do that. I've got a whole painting crew here. I can't leave. No, you have to go. You don't have a choice in this. You you need to go to. Wow. Well, they, they weren't. I'm overemphasizing yeah. that. They said, no, you have to go.
1: We want you to go. We want you to go. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I realized right then I did not have a choice yeah. if I wanted to keep my. I mean, they did not threaten me. I don't right. mean to say that. No, no. But they were very emphatic that you don't.
1: You're use, a writer
2: you don't use an excuse that you're painting your living room <laughs> when the Unabomber has just been caught within three hours of where you're living in Montana
0: right and we
2: have no we have no reporters in Montana right now mm. or Utah or wherever we had no reporter you are the closest reporter and this is a breaking story mm. so i I just realized within two minutes that I had I was going right to see the Unab- I was going to where they caught the Unabomber. He had been caught
0: mm-hmm.
2: and taken away. But they were having a they were taking the press out to the place where he was where he would have been living in a in a one room cabin in the woods. And mm-hmm. so I got to go out and see that. And then I wrote a story for the New York Times from there.
1: Mm-hmm. So that So you actually saw the the cabin he yeah, was, holed was up in? Yeah, I saw the the cabin
2: mm-hmm. that he was holed up in. So it was good for them, and it was good for me because it was a story that went, uh, it got a lot of play in the New York Times. Well, I would
1: say that, that would be front-page material.
2: Well, it? I think it was a second-day story. No, I did get a front-page story mm. out of that. I got something like 10 in my career. Really? Yeah, for various reasons. So that was always, as a reporter, that was your your goal, to, to try to get something on the front page. But, yeah, the Unabomber was—, it was uh, strange but Mm -hmm. interesting oh and then another time I was on a plane going back to Montana from Newport or from Boston and I met this American Indian who sat next to me and he and his wife were on the same plane with me and we were talking and I told them I was had house in Montana and they had a house about three hours from mine and so he said uh he was a Chippewa, full-blooded Chippewa Indian, but a very wealthy man because he had gotten into the nuclear power business. And he said, hmm. well, you should come to our ranch sometime. We have a lovely ranch in Montana, and we'd love to have you come and stay for the weekend. So I took advantage of that. And uh, the interesting part about that was that he had a bobcat as a pet. Oh. So he had caught it when it was in a tree as a as a— You know, it just had been born; it hadn't even opened its eyes yet, and uh, he groomed it as a pet. But it was still a very intimidating animal.
1: I bet because it was was a wild.
2: Well, I remember sitting in a chair, and it was sitting next to me, which made me very nervous. (laughs) And its head was like at my elbow. Right. So I remember thinking, "He says that this is a nice cat, but I'd much prefer my house cat to this cat." Yeah. And um, so anyway, I I, I never did. I mean, the cat, I stayed overnight at the house, and his his daughter was there, and a couple of their friends were there. And it was fun because he lived in this big old um, ranch house that was so beautiful. It was Mm. like two stories high, and I don't know what's ever happened to that family, but it was really a a, a great experience for me, and I wrote a column about it in the Times. Uh, But the bobcat was the focus of my story, and... I had a bedroom they gave me a bedroom that was overlooked the they had a big outdoor area for the bobcat mm-hmm. that was fenced in so that it wouldn't go out and get prey during the night right but I could hear him out there he was on a big chain and all night long I could hear the chain oh, boy. rattling you know and he, he the owner was kidding me and he said you know you can you can have the our uh, our cat sleep in your room if you want and I said no thank you right so he, I knew he was outside and um, he was he was down in the kitchen in the morning, and I came down for coffee. They'd brought him in from being outside during the night, <laughs> and uh, his his daughter in law, Brandon, was in the kitchen making coffee for me. All of a sudden, Toma was on my back. Yeah, and she had her, she had her big claws around my neck.
1: Oh my god!
2: And she she had just went Woof! on my back, and then. And I could, and her face was next to my face, and I could hear her purring. So oh. when I heard that, I felt much better because she wasn't attacking me. She had huge claws, mm. but she jumped on my back, and it didn't hurt me at all.
1: Most people would be intimidated if a dog did that, let alone a non-domesticated
2: cat. a big cat, <laughs> yeah. a big cat. And uh, I remember standing there with, kind of hunched over, and I said to uh, the owner's daughter, Brenda, Brenda, and I said it in a low voice, Brenda, would you please get this cat off my back? Right. And she goes, oh, Tom, I get down, you silly kitty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, now, how did you spend this experience with this cat and this family into a, a, a New York Times sporting Because
2: comic? when I met the owner on a plane with his wife, and uh, he was on the plane with his wife, and they were going back to Montana. And mm-hmm. I was going back to my house in Montana. So we were on the same flight. Oh, okay. So he said, I have a house, a, a big ranch house. uh, that is historic ranch house. It wasn't something new. Mm. Uh, you should come visit sometime. So I, you know, always looking for a story. Right. I took, I took him up on it. And, uh, you know, like six months later, I wrote him and said, I would like to come out to see your ranch and – it would make a good story about this Chippewa Indian who was living in this beautiful ranch that had incredible history mm. from before the Civil War.
1: So it took more of a an outdoorsy or a culture. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't article. a story.
2: It wasn't one of my columns. One of the other sections of the newspaper. Printed. Oh, okay. I called them and said I have a story, and that was the beauty of writing for the Times. You could say, "Well, I've I've found out about another story." Can mm. I? And so uh, that was printed in another section of the Times. But it was, um, it was a good story, and it was fun to do. I mean, mm. I, really, I was really glad that I did it. I've lost contact with those people. It's too bad I should have tried to keep in contact with them. They were very generous and nice people. But, you know, everything was an adventure to me.
1: Right. <laughs> One thing I noticed, it's toward the end of the book, you, you always have seem to have maintained good relations with your different partners and friends throughout. Yes. And when you asked... Someone to send you some pictures for the book. He sent a nice note, and it just it was a really great outlook. I thought his name was Pat. He,
2: oh Pat Murray. You
1: asked for some 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 pictures maybe to fill in in this book, mm-hmm. and he sent a note that said, "Even though there is much sadness at looking at these slides, I send them along to you because there is so much joy." And then he said, "It's seeing the joy of life, well lived." I scan slides, and you scan memories, and put them in words. Too many people ignore memories because they haven't the skills to write about them. Mm-hmm. That was a really nice note for yeah. an ex to send somebody I know, <laughs> along I know. with I know. some pictures. That's when that was a theme. You seemed to have had good relations with everybody. They seemed to accept your nomadic, adventurous lifestyle.
2: It is true. It really is. I don't. I've never. I, I can say categorically. I've never. Lived with someone and broken up with them, where um, we didn't remain friends. Mm. And to this day, I'm still friends with Pat. Oh, that's great. And I'm remarried, and that's right. all fine. And um, I, I just have been very lucky that way because I've always met people. I've still talked. I still once in a while will email Yen in Denmark, and mm. he emails me back. So all these people that were very important in my life for usually maybe six, seven years at a time, eight years. Mm. Um I've remained friends with all of them. I mean, there aren't that many. There're right. maybe 5. <laughs> maybe 4. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> and you did all this while raising a son. Yes. Chris who is
2: a great guy. Yeah. And he knew all of my friends and yeah, I I have a great son. He's fantastic. And he's very outgoing and mm. he's married and he has a uh, I have a granddaughter um who Emmy who is uh Six years old, and she's darling, and they live out in the west, mm. uh, in Hood River, Oregon. So I don't get to see them as much as I would like to. But he, you know, he 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 would always come and visit me wherever I was. So right. Yeah. That was always fun. He
1: took advantage of yeah. Those Having a nomadic mother. Right. Yeah. There's a great story about, it. and I, and I wondered as I read it if it was the house I rented from you. He had a skateboard. One of your partners gave him a skateboard, and he was thrilled to death with it, and he, there's a story in there about him skateboarding through the house, and you allowed that, and I just remembered oh. I begged my mother for a skateboard, and it took a long time, but I finally got one, and it certainly wasn't going to be allowed in the house. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Actually, it wasn't in the house that you rented. It was oh. uh, in an apartment. Uh, it was in an apartment in Newport, but it had a. a we lived on the third floor, mm. and um, it was a big apartment, but it was on the third floor. And Yen had just come back from Denmark to visit. He was, t- I say, he was home. Mm. That was home for him because he ended up buying a house in Newport eventually. But um, he, uh, my son, had a skateboard, and so Yen, my Danish sea captain friend, mm. decided he would try to skateboard. So he got on the skateboard, and the apartment was such that all the rooms were. Uh, it wasn't in any kind of a square. It was longitudinal. So there was a kitchen, a living room, a bedroom, Mm. and another bedroom. And so he got on the skateboard and all of a sudden we were in, I was in one room, Chris was in another. The skateboard came flying through the apartment (laughs) (laughs) and went through all the rooms and ended up Going through the final door that went to outside and putting the bow, the front of the skateboard through the door. Right. Like a like Jaws.
1: A hollow panel door. Yeah. yeah. And
2: I just remember, you know, I was absolutely hysterically laughing. <laughs> and my son was on the floor laughing. We were all <clears throat> laughing so hard. And it was a rental and I thought, Oh my God. But I you know, I didn't yell at him or anything. I just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> and we all did. We were all laughing hysterically because the skateboard just kept going.
1: Yeah, they, they do that. <laughs> Especially when you wipe out I know. through the door. D- did you lose your deposit on that or <laughs> I don't remember no. <laughs> I must
2: have paid I must have done something like buy a new door. I don't remember because I don't remember it being an issue. I think probably Yen went and fixed it or something. He was very clever.
1: The third billionaire that you've had an interaction with was Rupert Murdoch.
2: Oh, yeah, but I didn't really know him. I mean, yeah. Then he was
1: in your office, and you thought he was some homeless person. Oh,
2: right. We had a big press center in San Diego, and Rupert Murdoch was there. I didn't really know him personally, but he was there, and everyone said he had a huge—well, I saw it. He had a huge yacht Mm. in the harbor in San Diego, and we were all there for the America's Cup Yacht Races. Mm. And—
1: Was that 92? Yeah,
2: probably Mm. was 92 or 95, one or the other. Mm. And— I remember walking in one morning, and I, I had an apartment, a condo that the Times, the New York Times, had rented for me right almost adjacent to that building where we had the press center. Mm-hmm. And so I got up early that morning, and I walked into the press center, which was a, like a big, huge, long room with with computers all over it because we had a big press score there. We had probably three, 400 reporters at that America's Cup event. hmm and it was early morning when I walked in there, and there was only one man sitting at the last row of this big press center at one of the computers. And I have to back up and tell you that during the night before, because my apartment that the Times had rented for me, was right next door to the press center. So how perfect was that? Mm. But it was downtown San Diego. And the night before, there was some, some homeless person out rummaging around in the garbage cans. All night, and I was exhausted, which is why I was up so early in the morning, hmm. just you know kept looking you for food. It kept me up yeah. half the night, so I finally just gave up, I got out of bed at like six in the morning and decided i'd just get dressed and go in the press center and see what my agenda was for the day and It turns out that way in the back of this huge press center, there was this man in there, and he was he was like. He looked like a hobo. he had a mm. third day beard, and his hair was all messed up, and he had some sort of big uh, loose shirt on and and uh he was the only person back there, and he was at one of the computers mm. and I thought it was very strange. So I don't know why I did it, but I went to the back of the computer of the of the press center, and I said to this guy. If you don't have a press pass, you shouldn't be in here. Mm -hmm. This is only for press. And he looked at me, and he kind of growled at me. Mm. And then I walked away and walked back up to the front of the press room. And there were two women in there, two young girls who were working as aides in the press center. They said, what did he say? What did he say? I said, what did who say? And they said, back there, Rupert Murdoch, what did he say?
1: You didn't know who he was. I didn't
2: know who he was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nope. And that was the same person that was kept you up all night?
2: No, no. Oh. There was somebody in the garbage cans. Oh. And I thought that Rupert Murdoch was the guy that kept me up all night oh. by rummaging around in the garbage cans because he was a mess. Yeah. He had a second-day beard. Yeah. He, he was just in sloppy clothes because he'd just come in off his yacht in the harbor. Right. And he wanted to go in the press center before anyone recognized who he was. But, yeah, that was really embarrassing.
1: Yeah. But you didn't recognize him, and you I told him to get out. I didn't recognize him
2: because he had just must have just rolled out of bed. He hadn't shaved. His right. hair was a mess. Yeah. And he looked like the guy in the garbage cans from the night before. Oh, wow. Well, he looked like the guy I imagined from being in the garbage cans. And I couldn't figure out what he was doing in the press center because there's a huge press center, and he's the only one in there. And I thought he was he – was
1: Up to no good. Up to no good. It right. was
2: somebody's computer. So I know I, sound like a, I sounded like a brat, but <laughs> –
1: well, no, you've you've. But I mean, I really thought center. he was gonna.
2: I thought he was gonna steal the computer. I didn't. I did. It wasn't because he was scruffy and he was there. It was because mm. he was at one at one of the reporter's computers.
1: One thing I just I it skipped over. Not that we've maintained any sort of timeline here. So one person I wanted to talk about was Mike Plant uh, in Coyote. Mm-hmm. and Coyote, and I mean that boat was. The French dominated that solo offshore around the world scene for so long, and. I guess still do, and Mike had this incredible boat, and he was basically taking the milk run to bring the boat over to Europe when he disappeared, and did you cover that?
2: Yeah, I did. I did. Mm. That was a sad day. Yeah. Yeah. It was a 60-foot boat. Um, It was very, what we call beamy. It was very wide and very flat, Mm. and um, he was a good sailor, so... You know, it was very sad when he disappeared at sea because no one could figure out what happened. And then months later, his boat was found turned upside down over off the British coast or European coast. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike was gone. Yeah, that was very sad because uh, he was a local guy. He grew up in Jamestown, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and uh, he had a, a girlfriend, I mean, his, I think of his fiance who— Lived in Jamestown, and she she ended up going over and retrieving the hull mm-hmm. four months after that it happened, but he, there was no sign of Mike, and he was so capable. He was just right. dotted all his eyes. No one could believe that it was Mike's plan. I mean, there were a lot of people who did this single-handed transatlantic racing, and um, you know, you you could understand that they they messed up. Right. But Mike, you just don't know how that happened. No. We'll never know. And, you know, the other thing about that was that he – those boats have what are called transponders, Mm -hmm. which indicate the location of the boat. But what we finally found out was the reason we were not getting an EPIRB signal was that Mike never registered the EPIRB. Oh. So no one knew what it was. What to look for. What to look for.
1: Now, your writing contributions went beyond – the major employers we already discussed. You also wrote for uh, big sailing publications such as
2: Sail Magazine.
1: You've written for all of them. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: But not, I mean, it's been was a while. that post
1: Times period. Uh, uh,
2: some of them may have been during it. Some before cruising Road, Yeah. Hmm. Um,
1: yeah, I imagine all a lot of publications like that have struggled as well. Yeah. To is print advertising is fallen by the wayside. Oh, definitely, definitely. And that affects their ability to deliver content. Right. Well, that was a fantastic chat. and We could have gone on probably for another hour. If you are interested in learning more of Barbara's story and reading her book, that book is called Heart of the Story, Notes from a Reporter's Free-Spirited Life, a memoir by Barbara Lloyd, and it is available on Amazon.com.
0: Thank you for listening to Standing Before the Mass podcast with Chris Heaton. Sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.